Welcome to Analyze Asia, the podcast dedicated to dissect the pulse of business, technology, and media in Asia. The show is sponsored by IdealWorkspace.com, which promotes a healthier way of working through their adjustable standing desks. Check out their latest smart adjustable standing desk at aspirus.co, A-S-P-I-R-U-S dot C-O, and linkshus.com, where you can sell your products everywhere. Hi, Andrew. Hi, Bernard. How are you doing? Good. Excited to be you know, working on uh, uh, AI here at Pfizer Research. Glad to take some time out to speak for you today. Yes, I am talking to Andrew Ng, the Chief Scientist at Baidu and the Head of the Baidu Research. So Andrew, I've heard a lot about machine learning, artificial intelligence through a common contact of ours, which is your younger brother. So maybe you can tell me a little bit about your background. How did you get started in artificial intelligence and have the interest to apply machine learning to real-world problems? So ever since I was very young, I think when I was in going to high school in Singapore, I had a strong personal interest in AI. And way back when I was maybe 16 years old, I did a summer internship at the National University of Singapore implementing neural networks, really early, early rudimentary forms of deep learning algorithms. And for most of my life, I thought, you know, what could be cooler than building machines that are smart and can do some of the things that previously only humans can do. I think that today, you know, a lot of us have to do a lot of routine, repetitive things, almost, you know, mental drudgery, things like driving a car to work every day, answering unimportant emails. And if we can have AI automate a lot of these things, it could save humanity so much time and free up all of us to pursue higher endeavors. So I've always wanted to, you know, build AI and, and get this out to people and use this to help make people's lives easier. And you became an academic and you teach in Stanford and subsequently you co-founded a company called Coursera and then lead to Baidu. I guess the question for me is what are the kind of lessons you have learned from taking the academia like knowledge and put it to the real world when you have to start a company? You know, I'll tell you one thing that I've learned uh, gotten much better at, I think, over the past several years is to become better at predicting the future. I think that when I was younger, I think my own thinking was a little less strategic and I'd be able to, you know, look out maybe a year or two years in terms of the, the impact of our work. And I find as I get older, I think I've become slightly better at seeing a little further in the future so that we can better choose actions today that has a higher chance of um, affecting users. So, and I think, you know, to, to, to the young listeners, listening to this podcast, if you're interested in developing skills like that, the advice I usually give people is to read a lot and to keep learning. I think that, you know, whether reading popular business books or taking business or strategy courses on Coursera, the people that end up best able to drive a research program and have it have impact on people are the people that keep learning. And it's not about, you know, spending one week and studying really hard. It's about spending your whole life week after week, year after year, learning a little bit every single week, every single month, every single year. And if you do that, if you read a book a month, a, a month or read two books a month and you do that for one month, that's not that good. But if you do that for two years or five years or 10 years, you actually learn a lot and you actually become much better at driving research and doing things that you know, have, have an impact on users. 
Before you joined Baidu, you were working on a project called the Google Brain Project, which is used to recognize cat pictures. Can you tell me a little bit about that project? Sure. So many years ago, I founded and led uh, Google's deep learning project called the Google Brain Project. And at that time, one of the results we developed was having a piece of software watch videos on the internet. And then we found that the software had automatically learned to detect commonly occurring objects in internet videos, such as, you know, uh, cats, which, which was the uh, does maybe reinforcing the stereotype that there are all these cat videos on the internet. The interesting thing about that result was that no one had ever told it what a cat is. It had discovered the concept of a cat by itself. And so that early work was an example of the technical term is unsupervised learning. And what that means is an algorithm that goes and looks at data and discovers things by itself. And I think that the surprise since then was that almost that that technology, while intellectually exciting and a very cool demonstration, and I'm, I'm proud of the work that you know the team I led uh, uh, did. The surprise was that it turns out other forms of machine learning have become much more valuable than that. And so that early work on unsupervised learning, as intellectually exciting as it is, is maybe not the set of techniques that is maybe having the biggest impact, which is the technical term is supervised learning, but, mm. but it's just different mechanisms than what we had done for that old cat work. So for example, for unsupervised learning, can this actually be applied to recognize dogs without knowing what a dog is or any other kind of objects that you kind of defined it to be? So it turns out that if you want to write a piece of software to recognize dogs, by far the most effective way to do so is to find a bunch of pictures of dogs and show them to a computer mm -hmm. and tell the computer that all of these are pictures of dogs. So that's an example of supervised learning because mm -hmm. you're telling the computer, I want to find dogs and here's a bunch of examples of dogs. And that's actually what's driving most of the economic value of modern machine learning where you kind of know what you want and you show the computer a lot of examples of it and the computer learns to recognize it from all the examples you show it. So the early work on unsupervised learning said you go to a computer and you say, I don't know what I want, but watch these videos and find some stuff. And that turns out to be less of the technology, uh, less effective for today's applications than when you know what you want and you give the computer lots of examples of what you want. At least that's the status of technology today, where knowing what you want and giving the computer examples lets you build much more effective systems. But going into the future, I think all of these are exciting research directions. And so at Baidu, we are uh, making significant investments in all of these research areas. That comes to the most interesting subject of the day, that's Baidu. Uh, just to give my audience an introduction, Baidu is the largest search engine in China focusing on the Chinese language. And I guess, Andrew, the first question is, you have been in Silicon Valley for a very long time, as in in Stanford. How did you decide to join Baidu and doing this research on deep learning? So let's see, for a long time, even before I joined, Baidu has been one of the leaders, one of the global leaders in AI and deep learning. And so when I decided that I want to spend you know, the next period of my life uh, trying to advance the AI mission, to develop hard AI technologies and to take it to impact hundreds of millions of users, I looked around and I felt that Baidu was the best place on, at, at, at which to execute that mission. There are several reasons for this. One of them is that Baidu is an incredibly nimble company. You know, Baidu's company is very good at quickly inventing technologies, quickly allocating resources to new projects, quickly taking the best technology and getting them out to have an impact on users. And I think if your goal is not just to you know, write a bunch of research papers, if it's not just to have clever ideas, but to have clever ideas and also to take those ideas to make 
people's lives better by Du is incredibly nimble and very, very good at that. And then the second thing I appreciated about Baidu is just the strong depth of talent up and down the organization. I think that Baidu, I, I guess I don't have deep insight into what all the companies are doing, but Baidu has been so effective at inventing deep learning algorithms and shipping it into so many products and, and using it. You know, one of the things that Baidu did well early on was create a deep learning platform, a piece of software that empowered um, engineers all across the company to use AI, to use deep learning, to create all sorts of creative applications, including many that I, as an AI researcher, would never have dreamed of. So quick examples. Today, Baidu uses deep learning to try to figure out when a hard disk, when hard disks in our data centers are about to fail. And this improves reliability and reduces operational costs of our data centers. Um, our computer security software is also powered by deep learning. And there are just like dozens and dozens and dozens of examples like this. You know, massive deep learning talent up and down the organization and the platforms that you know we've been able to provide to engineers is empowering the whole company to advance AI, advance you know, machine learning and apply to all sorts of problems that I wouldn't have imagined. And so I think, I don't know, I've been very happy here actually. It feels like the team is making incredible progress in deep learning and shipping it to, to a lot of users uh, very quickly. So I'm excited and, and, and very proud of that. In your role currently, what are your areas of research in Baidu, mainly on deep learning or on other interesting stuff as well? So Baidu Research as an organization has about 200 people. And so we have many teams working on many different projects. So I think we have possibly the best, but certainly one of the best speech systems in the world. I think we made some significant breakthroughs in speech recognition. I'm excited about that because I think that speech, if you can talk to your cell phone, talk to your computer, this will change. This could change the way all of us interact with technology. The whole world has moved to mobile devices, but you know we all spend so much time typing on these tiny little keyboards on our cell phones. Uh, I love to just talk to my cell phone or talk to my TV and have it understand what I want. So we spend a lot of time on speech. We spend a lot of time working on computer vision as well. So Baidu has invented a lot of technology in computer vision that now other companies are now building on top of our work, which which we're excited about as well. So for example, we were the First, working with UCLA University to figure out how to take a picture and have a computer write a description of that picture using deep learning. It was one of those shocking results that now lots of others are building on. But our computers can, I mean, imagine that computer can look at the picture and tell us, oh, this is a picture of a bus driving down a green field and, you know, there's trees in the background, grass in the foreground, and really describe a picture maybe similar to the way a human would. So, mm. so I'm excited about that. And we have a lot of applications of this. Maybe one of the most exciting is that we have been researching project to use these descriptions to help blind people because when a blind person faces a scene, it's hard for them to, you know, really well see it the way that a sighted person can. And so we're having machines try to describe to them what's in front of them. We have a lot of work on big data. Uh, we bring quite a lot of revenue to the company as well, you know, through deep learning applied to advertising and, and other things. But I think our team of so maybe 200 people explores a lot of areas, mostly focusing on AI and machine learning and uh, applications of, of AI and machine learning and deep learning. In the last one, two years, there's been a lot of interest in artificial intelligence, machine learning, deep learning. I guess the question for me is what is driving this interest given that you know companies like, from what I hear from you, Baidu has started this trend 
or much earlier than Google and Google itself as well? Yeah, I think that, let's see, I think there are a number of leading companies, you know, I do Microsoft, Facebook, Google, Amazon, and so on. They've all been scaling up our investments in deep learning. And I, I, I actually honestly don't know who, who, who was first. Mm. But I think that a lot of this interest in new interest in deep learning and machine learning is driven by scale. And what I mean is, you know, what does it take to build a successful machine learning system? I often like to make an analogy to building a space rocket, right? So if you want to build a space rocket, like a rocket ship, what does that involve? Well, to do that, you need a huge rocket engine and a lot of fuel, right? That's basically what a space rocket is. And both the rocket engine and the fuel need to be big. If you have a huge engine and a tiny amount of fuel, you're not going to go very far. If you have a tiny little engine but a ton of fuel, you probably won't even get off the ground. So both need to be big. The analogy to machine learning is that the rocket engine are the huge computers we're now able to build, the, the really the big iron, the giant supercomputers that we build at Baidu. And, and others built, built mostly smaller computers, but just the scale of computation we can bring to bear, that's the rocket engine. And the rocket fuel is the huge amounts of data we now have access to. You know, Thanks to the rise of mobile devices, of the internet, and so on. Leading tech companies now have massive amounts of data, massive amounts of fuel, and by building huge computers, huge rocket engines to absorb this fuel, machines are getting smarter and smarter. So at the risk of oversimplifying, I think that a lot of the rise of AI and machine learning is, is, is all about scale. And then there's, there, there are other things as well, but a lot of it is driven by, by sheer scale of the computation, of the big computers, and of the data. This is why at Baidu, I think we've been I, really the first to make a lot of investments in building very, very large computers, such as investing in supercomputers, building supercomputers to, so we get huge rocket engines to absorb the data that we have in order to make our systems smarter. So I think that you also see a whole plethora of startups that have actually also moving into this area for artificial intelligence by looking at different kinds of data for example hr data you know the data that's out there is this actually driven a lot by also a lot of data that's out in the open so they can actually learn more about create intelligence around those data you know i'm excited about the number of ai startups I think that the bleeding edge of ai today will mostly happen in the large tech companies mm. and that's because ai today is a capital intensive business. You need the data and you need the big iron, the giant computers in order to process the data. Wow. And capital is relatively difficult for startups to, to, to acquire. Having said that, I think there are a lot of um, smaller vertical applications that startups can tackle successfully. So I see some startups trying to process you know, medical images and maybe or oil and gas or you know, but for specific verticals, I think a startup can be competitive. But for the problems that need a ton of data and huge supercomputers, it is easier for the leading tech companies like Baidu and a few others to, to, to build than a less well-resourced startup. I see. So I guess this is an interesting question. I actually worked in machine learning many years back in the Human Genome Project in Sanger, and we were using things like support vector machines, relevant vector machines. Oh, so maybe it's just a question to ask you. I've heard a lot about deep learning. I've saw some of your conference videos and that you explained this concept. Maybe can you give, can you explain the concept of deep learning to a, a audience and how does it actually apply to the real life problems, I guess? Sure. So let me just answer how it applies to real life problems. Um, I think all of us use machine learning, you know, at least dozens of times a day 
uh, often without even knowing it. So every time you check email and your spam filter saves you from reading tons of spam email, that's machine learning. Um, every time you use a credit card, there's probably a machine learning algorithm on the, on, on, in, in the server trying to figure out if it's you using your credit card or if it's been stolen, right? That's machine learning. And every time you send mail, you know, there's a learning algorithm reading the handwritten address, which is why you can route mail across the country or across the world so inexpensively. There's a computer that's learned to read handwriting. Every time you, you know, use a search engine like Baidu or the others, you're probably using machine learning. So all of us use machine learning dozens of times a day, often without even knowing it. And what we're seeing is that for problems where you have a lot of data, deep learning is proving to be more effective than the earlier generations of uh, learning algorithms. So as one example, one of the things I see a lot of progress on is speech recognition, right? Meaning, can you talk to a computer and have it understand what you said? And we have many, many thousands of hours, depending on how you count, maybe a hundred thousand hours of data of people, you know, speaking and, and transcriptions of that. So that's a lot of data. And what we find is that deep learning algorithms are um, superior to earlier generations of algorithms, such as support vector machines, when you have so much data that you can feed to these algorithms. Mm -hmm. As for what deep learning really is, it's difficult to explain, you know, in, in just a few words. So I'll, I'll try to give a terrible explanation, but maybe one that's a little bit helpful, which is deep learning algorithms. One of my friends at UC Berkeley calls it a cartoon of the human brain. You know, the brain learns via some process that none of us really understand, but the human brain is an amazing learning machine. And many years ago, Lucy inspired by little you know, pieces of maybe how the brain works, people developed artificial neural networks, which is artificial simulations of neurons that also tries to learn from data. Now, of course, none of us today really understand how the human brain works. I think we have almost no idea, right, how, how, how the brain works. But I think that artificial neural networks are a very, very crude and an incredibly crude simulation of little pieces of the brain, but that nonetheless gives us enough, gives our computers the ability to learn remarkably well from data. In Baidu, I, I heard you talk a little bit about some of the appli interesting applications and ideas. Are there any sort of interesting applications that has actually been brought to real life or into commercial use? Oh gosh, uh, so Baidu Research's work has been shipping. So many of our things have shipped and are affecting users. Mm. So let's see, our team has done a lot of work on speech recognition. And so we're in the process of rolling that idea, actually not in the process, right? of uh, rolling out more and more of those ideas to users. Our computer vision work powers a lot of the image search in Baidu, research images. You know, most of that is powered by our, by our computer vision work. And in fact, a lot of our work is also helping with Baidu's uh, advertising system. So, you know, so that has a very direct impact in terms of helping advertisers show their ads to the users much most likely to be interested, as well as helping users discover the most interesting ads. And so this is good for advertisers, good for users, as well as good for, you know, the, the company's bottom line. And I think one of the things that really Baidu Research did was create that deep learning platform that even beyond the applications that those of us in research work on, we're trying to empower 
engineers all across the company to work on other applications, such as the ones I mentioned earlier, of, you know, computer security or anti-spam or our OCR is used in a lot of places to help students with homeworks. But I, uh, feels like there's so many applications that have a hard time naming them yeah. all. But from a revenue impact, I think our impact on advertising is probably the most significant. But then I, I'm also very inspired by a lot of the projects to, you know, try to develop technology to help the blind, uh, the speech recognition for everyone. There's a lot, lot of exciting stuff Mm. So actually, quite interesting is that how different does one has to think about like, for example, text, image and videos when we switch languages of communication? I mean, if you think of a lot of the development in machine learning was always in English, but now you have to also apply to a Chinese demographic. Does the switch of language actually have some impact in terms of the way you think about these objects? Yeah, so um, I think that what we've been slightly surprised to find was that the algorithms that work well in Chinese are often very similar to the algorithms that work well in English. And the reason is it's all about the data. And, and so uh, here's one example. In the U.S. office, we had first developed our speech recognition system in English. And then we, you know, applied it to Chinese data. And we found that with very few changes, I'm going to say almost no changes, our algorithm, originally developed for English, works great for Chinese speech recognition as well. And, you know, there were little changes because English has 26 characters, that alphabet, English alphabet. Chinese has, we use maybe close to 5,000 characters. So there were some little changes. Before the most part, learning algorithms absorb whatever data you feed it and tries to learn from that. And so the biggest change was really, are we feeding it English data or are we feeding it Chinese data? And to a first approximation, just depending on what language you feed it, it then learns to understand speech in that language. But we'll find this to be true for, for, for many other applications. One of the challenges is getting data, right? So Baidu has a lot of Chinese data. We, we have also quite a lot of English data, but for the new languages, you work on. You know, for example, if we want to work on Portuguese, we would have to make sure we have sufficient Portuguese data in order to, to do well in that language. And so I guess what are your perspectives and kind of thinking about deep learning with like the new trend of O2O, they call it the online to offline that's happening everywhere with the sharing economy like Uber, Airbnb? You know, one of the exciting things about O2O, which I guess in the US is often called on demand, like Uber, Airbnb and so on, is the intensity with which it is taking off in China. And I feel like being in Baidu, right? Watching the trends in O2O, really on demand, everything from getting food delivered to your house to, you know, if you um, want the car wash, having someone show up and wash your car to having someone pick up your laundry and do your laundry and deliver it back to you 72 hours later to um, if you want a massage, having, having like just getting someone to shop at your house to give you a massage, right? All of these things are taking off at a pace that is so rapid in China. And I found it difficult to explain to people outside China the, the intensity and the, the velocity with which this is taking off. You kind of have to experience it to understand it. And I think because of the very high population density in China, as well as you know access to relatively low-cost labor, this on-demand services, O2O, is taking off at a faster velocity, a faster intensity than I see um, anywhere else. And so recently, I actually created a set of videos showing off some of the uh, where I was in China and I ordered or used a bunch of the O2O videos and I used my cell phone to shoot videos of you know these O2O services showing up. And so I posted those um, O2O videos on my personal website, uh, andrewton.org, my name.org, uh, to just, just to share with others 
that may not have visited China before to allow them to get a more visceral sense of how rapidly O2O is taking off in China. Because I think to entrepreneurs or to companies wanting to build up O2O services in other countries, I think there are a lot of ideas from the O2O ecosystem in China that will be useful to people in other countries as well. Mm. Uh, maybe just one, one quick example. You know, I was in the hotel room at 9 p.m. I was hungry. I wanted food. And I used my cell phone to order food. It showed up in, I think, 26 minutes. And that was just really fast, right? When I order food delivery in the U.S., it usually takes about an hour. And what's the difference between 26 minutes and an hour? Well, I'll tell you, when you're hungry at 9 p.m. in a hotel room, waiting 26 minutes is much better than waiting an hour. And I think a lot of this is, is all about scale, right? The high population density is making these things take off. It's so cheap, so accessible, so affordable that there's a huge opportunity for technology to help develop O2O, which is taking off faster in China than, than anywhere else I've seen. How about like, for example, people interacting beyond screens? I know Baidu has the Baidu Eye, and I think that what's going to happen is that we gradually we are going to be stuck without our at some point we will be living without cell phones and then we have a ability to see screens that are beyond us so how does deep learning actually apply to these things as well uh, you know i think that piece of the future is hard to predict uh, there is a lot of buzz about vr and ar i feel like there might be an excessive amount of buzz about about the headsets i think that you know wearing headsets um that's great for gaming i think you know in, in a few niches will take off but when we will have screens floating all around the with uh, amazing VR glasses, I think that future is still that that future still feels like it's a little bit ways away, and I think there's a lot of hard work to be done on the hardware still. Um, I think it is going to take off in gaming. I think in a few narrow vertical applications, like you know, new type of amusement parks, or maybe helping doctors of surgery, and a few specialized applications. I think it will take off the VR glasses, but I think that the vision of having screens floating all around us, I think we still have a lot of hardware problems to solve before we get to that reality. My penultimate question. So there are people like Elon Musk, Stephen Hawking, they talk about the dangers of AI taking over the world. And I'm, of course, I'm a fan of an American TV show called Person of Interest and that also talks about AI in a very bleak way. In your opinion, is it actually these kind of concerns are just hyped up? Yeah, I think these, these concerns about AI taking over the world, I think they're crazy. And I think that those of us that are on the front lines working on and shipping AI, I don't see a any clear path for AI to turn sentient or turn conscious and take over the world. And I think that AI today is creating tremendous value, right? It's helping users find uh, better information. It's helping us connect users' services. It's helping computers understand pictures. It's helping us to, you know, maybe take steps towards our driving costs. AI today is creating tremendous value, and I'm super excited about AI and machine learning and deep learning. Having said that, I think that those of us on the front lines really do not see a realistic path in the near future for AI to take over the world. I think I, I, I said to Elon Musk, I think that worrying about evil killer robots today uh, taking over the world is a little bit like worrying about overpopulation on the planet Mars. I think hundreds of years from now, hopefully we will have colonized the planet Mars and at that point the planet might be overpopulated and maybe it'll be polluted. We need to solve all these problems of pollution and overpopulation on Mars. But I just don't know how to, but, but I mean, as of today, we haven't even set foot on the planet yet, and I just don't know how to productively work on that problem. I think the problem with the hype about 
AI evil killer robots or AI superintelligence is that it's distracting leaders in industry and government and academia from a much more serious problem, which is the impact of AI on labor. I do think that there's a risk of AI displacing huge amounts of labor uh, and creating an unemployment. And AI, excuse me, technology has always displaced labor, right? Tractors took over a lot of farmers' jobs and so on. Um, and uh, industrialization, you know, automated manufacturing and so on. But the, the thing that is different this time is that the rise of AI is much faster. And so I think we have a risk in the next, you know, several decades of many individuals whose jobs could be displaced by AI. And so rather than worrying about evil killer robots, which I think is a distraction um, and, and hype, I think that um, serious leaders in government and human industry should be having a more serious, having conversation to try to address and uh, understand and devise solutions to the challenge to labor. So here comes my last question, Andrew. How do my audience find you? Um, I post regularly on Facebook and on Twitter. My Twitter handle is um, at Andrew Wyng, A-N-D-R-E-W-Y-N-G. Love to have uh, some of the audience follow me on Twitter or on Facebook if they want to hear the latest of what we're up to in AI and machine learning. Yeah. And you can find me at bleongcw or at bernardleong.com or subscribe to us at Analyze Asia, A-N-A-L-Y-S-E Asia. And you can find us in iTunes, Stitcher, Acast, and SoundCloud. And please give us a ratings. And uh, once again, Andrew, thank you so much for coming on this podcast. Yeah, great. Thanks a lot, Bernard. Enjoy, enjoy chatting with you.